The message that was delivered today at the Blue Point Bible Church unfortunately was not recorded properly. So this is not the original sermon that I preached, but I will be preaching you the exact same message. That way our online listeners and our church can possibly go over the sermon again on podcast. So this morning, instead of an exhortation, what I had given to our church was the plea that we would continue to understand, know and understand the fulfilled work of Christ. That we would meditate on this truth, that as we enter into this sermon series on the fulfilled work of Christ, that we will realize that we must understand the historical backdrop and the context of what Christ came to accomplish to Israel first and then allow ourselves to arrive at an understanding of what that means to us today in the 21st century through the proper historical backdrop. With that, I ask you to join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor, Lord, for being a mighty God. And I pray that your words are my words as I continue to re-preach this sermon, Lord God, that you might edify the listener and give glory to your saints, Lord, as we continue to pursue your truth. Lord, thank you for the fact that we can understand the truth. Lord, I pray that you are with me in this sermon, that I preach your words, Lord God. And I preach them in truth and in spirit, in the mighty and glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In Luke chapter 24, a passage most known as the road to Emmaus, two men are walking and talking about recent events. Basically, a prophet named Jesus had done great and mighty things in Jerusalem. It was this man they hoped who would redeem Israel, but sadly he was killed by the chief priests and the Romans. Sure enough, the rumor had it that they could not find the body. And some said that an angel appeared to them and said he was alive. Jesus himself was this angel walking with them. But the text says their eyes were prevented from seeing him. At the relaying of recent events, Jesus says to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe, in all the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained all the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul arrived in Thessalonica, it is said that in the book of Acts that it was his custom to go to the synagogue of the Jews and reason with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. I can imagine Paul standing in the synagogue of the Jews and opening up the scroll of Isaiah and reading. Now remember, they didn't have chapters and verses and a New Testament and an Old Testament like we, you know, we have. It's a privilege to have that, but they did not have that. They had scrolls and writings. Paul possibly recited it from memory since that was popular back then. Continuing the thought of God's servant who will prosper in Isaiah chapter 52, we begin in chapter 53. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of a parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appeared that we should be attracted to him. He despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us are like sheep who have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed 
and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and will be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. This prophecy was said around 670 B.C. Yet we have the apostles here in the first century, some 710 years later, saying that this prophecy of Christ, whom they just killed in that generation about 20, 30 years ago, this was speaking about that man. This was speaking about that Christ. Imagine the conviction of the Jews standing in the synagogues that Paul was speaking to. Imagine thinking, oh man, that was the Messiah that we killed. In Acts chapter 26, we read the Apostle Paul standing before King Agrippa, and he says to him, So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day, testifying to both small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Did you catch what Paul says here? He said, I have proclaimed nothing other than what was written in the Law and the Prophets. So whatever Paul says, we can find it by going back to the Law and the Prophets. The Apostle would have again been reading from the writings of Isaiah, which say, And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of God, and God is my strength, he says. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved one of Israel. I will make you a light to the nations, so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. And that is Isaiah chapter 49. You see, God's not only going to save Israel. You know, we know that Jesus came to the lost sheep of Israel. We know that Paul, the Apostle Paul, was called to go to the Gentile people. A people who were far off. It is important to note the context here in Isaiah chapter 49 was that Israel had been led captive into Babylon and obviously desired to be a free people. The cries and warning of Israel in bondage again and again is a popular notion through the Old Testament. But God would always lead them to freedom. You will surely see this running theme as we go through this story in a moment. Originally, when Cyrus the Great allowed the Jews to establish a Jewish state within the region when the Medo-Persians conquered Babylon, he was seen as a sort of savior. Israel was the kingdom of God, yet their continued failure to walk worthy of this calling constantly led to God's judgment upon them. God's judgment wasn't a cloud and sun falling from the sky and stars falling and all the moon turning to blood. No. His judgment was always exercised through invading armies and exile. Even when they were restored, they always hoped for something bigger on the horizon. They always seen something else. The time and the rule of the Messiah is what they were looking forward to. When Paul arrived in Rome, due to his appeal to Caesar when he was arrested, he spent some time talking to the Jews there in Rome. This is what he says. Well, this is what the book of Acts accounts to us. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him in 
at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning until evening. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. I know we've all experienced that. You know, you tell, talk to somebody. Some people believe it, some people don't. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah, the prophet, to your fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. And with their ears they scarcely hear, and when they, clo- they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this day, this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. When he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute amongst themselves. And he stayed two years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God, teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness and unhindered. Paul would continually go to the Jews with the gospel message first because of Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says, salvation is of the Jew first and then the Gentile. We see this being spoken of as the, as the apostle Paul preaches to the crowds in Pisidian Antioch, accounted in Acts chapter 13. Many do not understand the importance of God fulfilling his messages to the people he needs to fulfill it to. If I tell you that I promise to do something to you, yet I don't do it to you and I give the promise to somebody else, I did not keep my word. God is not a man that he should lie. God keeps his word to those he promises it to. And he promised Israel that he would fulfill. He promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a blessing. And he was going to come through with that blessing and he would fulfill that blessing. And that blessing would become a light to the Gentiles. We read in Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 9, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. Did you catch the meaning of that? I'm going to break that down for you here. Christ became a servant to whom? The circumcision, right? Who was the circumcision? We would say Israel, following the covenant of Abraham under the law of Moses, correct? So Christ became a servant to Israel for what reason? To confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God. Well, for even more clarification, we read in Romans chapter 9 that the law, the promises, the fathers, and the covenants all belong to Israel of the flesh. Sadly, there's an absence in the church today regarding Old Testament studies and especially Old Testament preaching in the pulpit. Therefore, instead of understanding the gospel as it was originally relayed as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, dealing with the promises given to Old Covenant fleshly Israel, we have created a sort of myoptic gospel where we become the focal point rather than the original context. It becomes about me, my sorrows, my new life, my wanting a new body, my wanting to float with Jesus in a heavenly realm. We've forgotten about the original context, God fulfilling his promises to the fathers of Israel and the Gentiles glorifying God for that reason, for God's mercy. We went through Ephesians and we talked about how God had brought the Gentiles in. You can go back on our podcast and you can listen to our sermon series dealing with that, on how God brought the Gentiles into the body and what Jesus Christ had to do in order to do that. How in his flesh he abolished the commandments. Because that law needed to be taken out of the way, otherwise we would all have to be Jews. The Apostle Peter understood this quite clearly when he spoke about salvation. He says this, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he 
predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you through the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Oh boy, I might have went ahead of myself there in that text. Did you catch the point? I'm going to break this one down as well for you. The prophets of old, like Isaiah, that we read about the suffering servant, were pointing to a time when the Messiah and salvation would be revealed. A glorious time in which the angels longed to look. This time was upon the first century church as the proclaimed truth by the Holy Spirit. And it would all be consummated at the cross. No. No. It says right there in the text, Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is after the first coming of Christ. This is after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. This is after the ascension of Christ. And now we're talking about the second advent. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, it talks about when he will bring salvation. We'll be dealing with that more in our uh, sermon series here because we have to understand that it's not at the cross. And I know many will say, oh, but it says it is finished at the cross. Study what a high priest would do when he would slaughter a sacrifice. But they still had to wait for the high priest to come out in order for atonement to be complete. I believe what I have just shown to you today, so far, is sufficient to show that evangelism in the first century was showing how, who Christ was and how he would come to fulfill the prophecies. And this was done through looking at the Old Testament writings and saying, look, he fulfilled the law and the prophets. Throughout this series, we're going to learn the historical context, what some would call the, his, the redemptive history of the gospel message and all that Christ came to accomplish. Today, the focus is on the backdrop. I fear that without historical context, we end up at arriving at a very weak gospel message and it leads many, I myself could be one of those, or have been one of those people, to ask, why did Christ have to die at all? Why couldn't God come up with a different plan, a different system, a different way of doing things? That way nobody had to die. You know, and then obviously I usually answer in jest, do you have a better plan? Do you have a better idea on how to save, give salvation? <laughs> obviously not. But what is the point of this tale? What are we telling people? In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, we read, But when the fullness of time came... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. We don't hear that uh, message preached too much. Born under the law. Hmm. So what do you suppose the fullness of times means? Do you think the fullness of times could mean exactly what we read about in Peter? A time that the prophets sought to understand? Sure enough, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it says that Christ was revealed at the consummation of the ages. Christ came at the end of the present evil age. Let me make a point here. If I say, let's say there's a period of time, and I come close to the end of that period of time, right here, and the end's right here, close, and I say that I'm speaking about the end, are you to suppose that I'm speaking about an, another end 2,000 years later? Obviously not. You would think I'm talking about that end that's coming. If I came at the end of the age, and the end of the age, the age is about to end, soon, shortly, about to be, 
Would you say, oh, he must be speaking about a different end? How ridiculous would it be for people 2,000 years later to say, oh, no, he's speaking about an end for us. So Christ had come to redeem those under law. Why? I'll tell you what. Next week, we're going to go much more into detailing, showing how the law was given to Israel and how that was going to lead to Christ. We're going to illustrate their guilt of sin before God and how the law did this and showed them their need for a savior. The law produced sin. Therefore, life under law would always equal sin. This is why in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, we read that there is no condemnation for those in Christ who have been set free from the law of sin and death. We've been set free from the law of sin and death. What law have you ever been under? Have you ever been under the law of Moses? No. no nobody's been under the law of Moses. And if, you, if you've been deceived to think you have been under the law of Moses, you were exactly that. Deceived because the law of Moses ended in AD 70. It became obsolete. There's no sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never be the same... Never be by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year after year, making perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin year by year. You ever have somebody that reminds you of your mistakes again and again and again? Well, that's what the law was to an Israelite. Imagine year after year being reminded you're sinners. Again and again. It was never taken away. That's why they saw something greater on the horizon. Without getting into all the details, which we will do in the weeks to come, I might encourage you all to read through Romans chapter 2 through 5 and Colossians chapter 2 to better understand life under the law of Moses and how Christ would have been the substance and the value of what the law was leading to. Again, that's Romans chapter 2 through 5 and Colossians chapter 2. It was famous theologian B.B. Warfield who described the Old Testament as a room fully furnished but dimly lit. Because obviously the Old Testament was pointing to something they could not fully understand. The prophets longed to see what it was speaking about. It was obviously pointing to something they could not see. What we will be doing through this series is discussing the Magnalia Dei, the Latin term for the mighty acts of God, and detailing how God established a covenant with Israel, and through that covenant... With Israel of the flesh, God would make known a spiritual reality through Jesus Christ. When properly understood, it will enable us to understand this grand story of redemption and salvation in Christ. So let's start where the story begins. In the beginning, we read about a man named Adam. I will not go into all the details in this series concerning the creation account, but I will instead encourage you to visit our sermon podcast dealing with the whole truth, in which the first sermon series, the first sermon of that series, the whole truth, I actually dealt with the covenant with Adam, the creation of Adam. To give you a very plain and simple view, I'm a, a plain and simple explanation. I'm of the view that the story of God when he created heaven and earth and beginning with Adam and Eve, this is speaking about the beginning of God's covenant relationship with man. Adam is simply given a law. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the day he does, he will surely die. Well, sure enough, those of us who are not fond of rules can sympathize with Adam and Eve as they eat of the tree. Doing so brings them into knowledge of sin and shame and death. They died spiritually that day. They did not die biologically. They had shame, which I would imagine is how Israel would have felt year after year 
since the law and the sacrifices continued to bring knowledge of sin. So after a detailed judgment of sorts, which actually I guess you could just say is a judgment, God covers Adam and Eve with animal skins. You'll want to take note of the fact that he covered them with le- they covered themselves with leaves, which I would posit as a sort of trying to cover their own shame with what we might call a self-righteousness. But God provides, that's the key there, God provides a covering, and he kills an animal, which requires bloodshed. We'll go through that in this series as well. God provides their covering. They were sent out of the Garden of Eden and barred from the Tree of Life, which would have enabled them to live forever. And God declares the following judgment upon the serpent who had deceived Eve. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It said that that was the first time the gospel was ever preached. Later we will come to learn that it was Christ who would be revealed to destroy the works of the devil. Point to ponder right here. What are the works of the devil in Genesis? Deception, lies, death, disobedience. Right? Keep that in mind as we go through this series. As we continue through the book of Genesis, we read God continually establishing a relationship and sometimes judging the lineage of Seth. Through this lineage would come Noah, who would save his family on an ark from the judgments of the region around them. Sound familiar? That sound like Christ? Then we arrive at Abraham. The Apostle Paul, in his writings to the Galatians, notes the importance of Abraham when he says this. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. God had established an agreement with Abraham. That's what we mean when we say covenant. We mean agreement. A re- agreement relationship. So God's agreement with Abraham and his offspring was circumcision. This would mark them different than the others. This was a sign of their relationship with God. Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Isaac's blessings fall on his son named Jacob. And it is through these men that God's blessings would come. That should add a new meaning to the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's through these, this lineage that the blessings would flow. Jacob would have 12 sons who would later become the 12 tribes of Israel. It's their story we are following through the Old Testament. They end up in Egypt in bondage for over 400 years. And eventually God raises up a prophet named Moses who will lead them out. God establishes a covenant with Moses and the people of Israel. And this would be known as the law of Moses. It would be this law that would lead to both the blessing and the cursings of God's people. Obey and enjoy. Disobey and be judged. Those are your simple options. And we're going to see how this all ties into Deuteronomy. But it sounds like we're back in the garden, doesn't it? Obey and enjoy. Don't eat of the tree. Or disobey and be judged. Death. I would demonstrate this is exactly what happens in the Old Testament. You obey and you enjoy God's presence. You disobey and you get judged. Every time Israel would disobey, this would be their death of sorts. They would be invaded and conquered. You don't see them being sent to some fiery furnace or you don't see, you know, weird stories about, you know, lightning coming down and killing them or Jesus riding on a cloud and a horse with a tattoo. No, instead, what the Israelites would have understood as judgment, as God's coming on a cloud to them, was judgment, an invading army. Take away their peace. God would dwell among his people as long as they obeyed. I'm skipping through every detail. Hopefully, that will encourage you to read your Bibles at home. You will learn the history of Israel. They were established 
from Exodus to Egypt. Eventually, God's people established a kingdom under David and later his son Solomon. We can read about this in detail through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. There would be many ups and downs in this kingdom, eventually arriving at a split. God continually raised up prophets to let people know what was going to happen to them as they continually got lazy, apathetic, and just did not seem to care about the things of God. Israel has a history of forgetting about the things of God. This is where it's said that the messianic hope and the desire is said to have begun. Hope arose that God would someday restore a godly king to Israel. Some of Israel's prophets foretold the coming of a regal Davidic descendant, and their description seemed to portray him as far more than a mere mortal. Isaiah foretold the coming of a child and a son who will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and whose kingdom will never end. Again, Isaiah prophesied the coming of the branch of David on whom the Spirit of God will rest, who will rule the earth with justice and equity. Descriptions of these hint that this coming Messiah would be God himself. Eventually, Israel's disobedience led to captivity. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel was taken over by the Assyrian Empire. In 586 B.C., the southern kingdom was taken over by the Babylonians. The same prophets, like Jeremiah and Isaiah, who saw the impending judgment of God, would later proclaim the hope and realities of a new covenant, a new creation, God's restoration of them. When the Medo-Persians conquered Babylon, eventually Cyrus, who would have been seen again as a savior to the Jewish people, allowed the Jews to establish some identity. This was around 536 B.C. The running theme is, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's what God would say when he would restore his people. So when we read Revelation chapter 21 and 22, it's not talking about bouncing on clouds because we're the people of God. It's simply a reiteration of what Israel would have understood as a declaration of restoration. I will be their God and they will be my people. Praise God. If you will, open up with me to Psalms chapter 137. We're going to start at verse 1. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the day. The one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. You notice, Israel was bound. In Deuteronomy chapter 22 and Deuteronomy chapter 28, we read about Israel's bound to obey and be blessed, or disobey and be cursed. Their works, they would be judged by their works. If they obeyed, they were blessed. If they disobeyed, they were cursed. So when we arrive at the new covenant, at the new heavens and new earth, and it says there will be no more crying or mourning or pain, for the old order had passed away, what does this mean? Well, I'll tell you, to an ancient Israelite, that would simply mean that we are no longer going to be judged by our works. That if the law is judgment by works, 
And according to 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the soul that sins will die and all men are guilty of sin according to the law just means death. But glory to God that through Christ we have grace. We are no longer judged according to our works. We're judged according to his works. Grace. We've been welcomed in. When we put our hopes in his work, we're set free from a law of works. Therefore, we can't be judged based on our works. That's the new covenant. There's no more cursing upon us if we disobey. You see? That's what the new heavens and new earth is. It's a people of God that are not bound by a law of works. Therefore, there's no more mourning or crying or pain because we won't be invaded and sent to a foreign land where we will mourn and cry for Jerusalem because we'll be a part of a new Jerusalem. It just seems to make beautiful sense out of that story. No need for ethereal realms and fantasies. Continuing with the prophecies of the Messiah, in Psalms chapter 2 and chapter 20, they show us the idealized king, a son of God who will defend truth, humility, righteousness by defeating the enemies of Judah. Then in Psalms chapter 1, I mean, I'm sorry, Psalms chapter 110 adds that this king will be a priest forever and will judge the nations. The prophet Micah describes a king from, who the, from the house of David who will restore Israel in a big struggle with Assyria. This king will be born in Bethlehem. The prophet known as the second Isaiah, because there's a you know, just a contextual thing in the book of Isaiah that kind of gets a little tricky. It's a topic for another time. But in this writing, we, we read about an anointed one who was to free the Jews from exile and restore their temple. And he was to inaugurate an age of peace and righteousness. From the second century BC on, these texts were read and reread from a contemporary perspective. They were regarded as texts announcing the coming of a leader who was to defeat the Seleucid army. It would be the Maccabee brothers who would revolt against the Syrian domination of Judea, and after a long struggle, the Jewish people had won a brief hiatus of independence from foreign domination. During this time, there would be many divides in the people of Israel, differences on how to hold to the law, what must be done by the people of God, how the Messiah was to come, what would be his role, what's the role of the people of God. It's safe to say that the future of the people of God was quite confused. Those years of political freedom ended with Pompey's conquest of Palestine, and thereafter the country lived under the cloud of an uneasy Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. This is what's leading up to the time of Christ. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of a Jew that's living in these times. Are you looking toward fantasy land and drinking milk and honey and all this other stuff? Or maybe these terms mean something different. What do they want? They wanted freedom. Freedom from the invading armies. They wanted to go back to being the people of God like they were in the time of David. When, remember when Moses led us out of Egypt? Remember that freedom we felt? What happened? When will God restore it? That's what they're hoping for in the time of this Messiah. It's a political hope. The kingdom of God. Where is it? Matthew, more than any gospel writer, goes to great lengths to show that Jesus' birth, life, and death are firmly rooted in the Old Testament. Jesus was born of a virgin, fulfilling Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. He was born in Bethlehem, fulfilling Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. He was sought out to be killed by Herod, fulfilling Jeremiah chapter 31, 
verse 5. He was preceded by John, preparing the way, fulfilling Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. He healed diseases, fulfilling Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. He spoke through parables, fulfilling Psalm chapter 78, verse 2. He came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Matthew is very deliberate with his use of the Old Testament. Matthew looked back and saw an analogical correspondence between the history of the nation of Israel and the history of the Messiah. Matthew looked back and carefully drew analogies between the events of the nation's history and the historical incidents of the life of the Messiah. When Jesus started his earthly ministry, he began by proclaiming the gospel of a kingdom. Yet nowhere in the gospels do we see Jesus giving a clear definition of the kingdom. The reason is simple. Jesus didn't have to define what the kingdom meant because his hearers were well-schooled in the Old Testament. And yes, he, the variety of different views on how the kingdom was going to occur could be confusing. So we know that according to Nicodemus, there would be a misunderstanding, a spiritual misunderstanding of how this gospel message would be understood. Remember, Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. We must figure out how the devil operated. What was the works of the devil? What did Christ come to do? We know he came to fulfill the law. He came to bring in a new covenant. He came to bring in a covenant of grace, not works. No longer the threat of being judged by your works. And we will talk more about this next week. So this morning you have been given some historical backdrop of the coming of the Messiah. A question I want you all to think about through this series is this. What is the gospel? Author Alan Davies, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, makes some really good points when he says, If you ask most people what the good news of the gospel is, they will probably tell you about the virgin birth or the death, of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. This would be rather humorous if it was not so sad, considering the fact that for three and a half years of Christ's ministry, he doesn't even mention it many times. However, Christ does spend a lot of time preaching out of the Old Testament. Now imagine giving a reporter a manual to read and understand that makes reference and even quotes another source. How are you to find out what the first manual means other than reading the source material? This is, however, how most people are failing to understand the New Testament. The mystery of the gospel was not the death, burial, and resurrection. It's part of it. In fact, the death, burial, and resurrection was the sign, the only sign that Jesus gave to validate that his gospel message was true. That alone should have clued the people in on the fact that the gospel must be related to something after the sign of its validation. Paul said he preached nothing other than the law and the prophets, and he continued to speak about the hope of Israel, the resurrection. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we're reading about the salvation of what the prophets long for. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul continually points out that the gospel that's being declared by him is in accordance with the scriptures, and this is not the New Testament scriptures. This is the Old Testament scriptures. The New Testament had not even been written yet. The failure of many to understand the historical context leads to so much confusion in the church. This week I had another Christian ask me why I focus so much on the coming of Christ, that being the second advent, rather than just preaching about salvation. To that one must ask another question. How do you preach about salvation other than knowing the teachings of Jesus Christ, other than understanding the fulfilled works of Christ in their entirety? What you will notice through this series is that this is not a piecemeal gospel message. We don't have unnecessary details in the Bible. No, instead we have a comprehensive story that is taking place from Genesis to Revelation. 
and it's all necessary in order to understand, preach, and teach the biblical gospel. For example, a popular misunderstanding of our time is this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. And brethren, when I came to you, I came not with excellency of speech or with wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, you notice that Paul does not mention here that about Jesus' resurrection. Yet he talks about Jesus' resurrection throughout most of his writings. Also noting the fact that this is 1 Corinthians. If you read up to chapter 15, you're going to notice he talks about a lot more than Christ and Christ crucified. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ was a sign. And it was given as proof for the gospel that he was teaching. If you turn to Matthew chapter 12... Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 40, we read, But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation and craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah, the prophet. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the beast for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Then in John chapter 2, verses 18 through 21, The Jews said to him, What sign do you show us as authority for you doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple, his body. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ was a sign of Jonah for that generation that they were coming under judgment. Christ's crucifixion is the reason they were destroyed and the reason why redemption was needed to come. His crucifixion began the sacrificial redemptive process. And the end of that process would not be complete or perfected until he returned. The end of that process had not yet occurred when Paul is writing, so we can only point to the sign that validates the central point of his message. Alan Davies again makes a great point when he speaks about a man carrying a briefcase. If a man's carrying a briefcase and he calls you and he says, I don't know where I am. All I know is I got my briefcase. Is it the briefcase that matters or the documents that are in the briefcase that are important? The crucifixion was that. It was a sign of the gospel. It was part of the gospel, just like the briefcase is part of what the man is bringing to the meeting. It's the sign. It's the thing you can see. The briefcase is a vehicle for the important papers that are inside of it, just as the crucifixion is a sign that points and validates to us the gospel message is true. I believe Tony Denton said it best. The thing is, there's true biblical hope, and then there's a pseudo-unbiblical hope that man has created through erroneous interpretation. The correct biblical hope was one of man's reconciliation to the Creator through the Messiah, and that had been accomplished in Christ. That's what we are going to work through on this series. We're going to work through the fulfilled prophecies of Christ, the fulfilled work of Christ. We're going to build on that foundation and understand what did this mean in its entirety. Next week, we will continue doing exactly that. And we will see, seek to know and understand the fulfilled works of Christ in detail how such a great salvation has occurred.